When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. In 1945, Britain was broke and exhausted, but the country had big hopes for the future, for a free national health service for everyone, for new housing, better schools. What were the hopes and ideals we had then, and what became of them? I'm Ros Taylor, and this is the story of how we were promised jam tomorrow. You have to recognise that those who oppose the idea of educating all children together tend to have and have had the strongest voice in society. That balance between money and established status has changed. The Labour government in the late 70s and Thatcher in the early 80s especially had been rather relieved that fewer people were coming forward for higher education because it saved money. Status definitions are different in London than in the provinces, for sure. In the provinces, they're more traditional. In London, they recognise money. If you ask Britons what class they belong to, nearly half of them will say working class. A third think they're middle class. Just 1% of Britons think they're part of the upper class. We're very ambivalent about class in Britain. Plenty of us enjoy the show, the royal family, the stately homes, Downton Abbey. But people fiercely resist the upper-class label, however rich or privileged they might be. I asked Peter York, an avowed expert on class and status and co-author of the Sloan Ranger handbook, what class he belonged to. His answer might surprise you. I am, I'd love to say it was as clear-cut as that, but I am British imperial middle class. And I put, the imperial is just because it's funny. (laughs) It's not because it's fantastically colonial, but in every sense, if there hadn't been a few historical accidents, I would have been brought up in the home counties and gone to a sort of medium level public school, et cetera, et cetera. But a few funny cultural accidents happened and instead, I was brought up in British North London, meaning NW, NW3, Hampstead. And the difference about that, which slightly unmoored me from being a mainstream British imperial middle class, is the artiness, the cultural profile of that place, which is, of course, a Daily Mail joke. 
It's been a Daily Mail joke long after the jokes outlived its value. But that meant I was still in the sort of ragged edge of the 7% who are privately educated. But I went to a progressive school, which is a funny thing in itself. And that meant excessive emphasis on the yards, music and the visual arts in my background, a certain, a particular kind of cultural capital, which if I'd been a proper imperial home counties middle-class person, I would have missed out on because they, uh, they think it's all tosh. Complicated, isn't it? But what we do know is that while some Britons affect to despise social climbers or people getting above themselves, there's always been a fierce belief that you should be able to make it if you work hard enough. But can you? Or is family money still the real key to success in Britain? In this episode, I'm going to find out how the government's original plans to enable people to move up in life by passing the 11 plus benefited a lucky few, but left the rest behind. I'll look at why, despite that, the grammar school ideal still has a firm hold on the middle-class British imagination, not least because it's your best chance to get to Oxford or Cambridge if you can't afford to go private. We'll hear how, despite being sorted into secondary moderns and told they weren't university material, millions of Britons fought their way into the middle classes through a different route. And I'll ask whether it's time to stop talking about the upper class at all and be honest about who holds the wealth and power in Britain. Towards the end of the Second World War, class was preoccupying Britons. Russia seemed to have abolished it after the revolution. Could the same thing happen here? A worried home intelligence report found that Britons were becoming more class conscious. In the northern region, the bias in popular political thought seems to be turning from liberty to equality. There seems to be a desire, largely unexpressed, for greater social security after the war. And it is stated that the success of Russia has tended to prepare the public mind for alterations in the present order of society. The reports were keen to understand the roots of this new desire for equality, which they called homemade socialism. They talked about a levelling up of classes resulting from bombing and rationing. So don't believe anyone who tells you that Boris Johnson invented the concept of levelling up. It was there in 1942. But there were other reasons why socialist, even communist thinking was gaining hold among some working and middle-class activists. The Russian successes, the blaming of vested interests for the ills of production, the fear that conditions of the last post-war period may be repeated. It is stressed that, for the most part, these ideas are indistinct and only formulated by such vague expressions as things will never be the same again, we'll see to that. We heard sentiments like these during the pandemic when people talked about building back better and a newfound respect for the NHS. It hasn't really lasted. But in the 1940s, the government feared that communist ideas could take hold. They knew they needed to acknowledge people's shared sacrifice during the war. So they asked them what they thought equality of opportunity meant. Working class people consider this a sine qua non and understand perfectly what is meant by the phrase. To quote one working-class mother, it means that if my genie wants to be a teacher, she can go straight ahead. But middle-class people understood equality of opportunity totally differently. There is some confusion of thought concerning the phrase among middle-class people. They say the interpretation of the phrase gives rise to many difficulties. 
or there is no such thing as a quality of opportunity. Everybody is born different. Several business and professional contacts interpreted the phrase equality of opportunity as meaning to bring down everyone to the same low level. So it wasn't surprising that in the 1950s, new working class identities started to emerge, especially in the North. It helped if you were a man and if you passed the 11 plus. Money matters, money lad. What's the good of a girl like that to you? She'll only break your heart. Now I've got a proposition for you. I'll set you up on condition that you never see Susan again or communicate with her. Come on now, use your head. You want to improve yourself, you want to get in among the money. All right, I don't blame you for that. But you're not getting at my brass through Susan. You wouldn't talk to me like that if I were Jack Wales and had a rich daddy behind me. I don't give a damn for Jack Wales. A nice little business merger between the two families. I don't barter my daughter. You're trying to barter her now. That's enough. If you refuse it, I'm going to break you. And what's more, I shall run you out of Wanley. That was from Room at the Top, a film that came out in 1959 about a working-class man who was trying to marry his boss's daughter. When you have an ambitious working class and a middle class that's defensive about its privileges, you get conflict. And that's exactly what happened to a big new policy that was supposed to open up equality of opportunity to everyone, the grammar school. The first comprehensives that actually opened in the late 1930s, grammar schools did exist, but places weren't always free and poorer families often turned them down because they would have had to pay. The idea behind the Education Act of 1944 was that all children would stay at school until the age of 15 and take a test at the age of 11. That test determined whether they were offered a place at a grammar school. When you are 11 years old or so, you leave your junior school and go to a school for bigger boys. There are three different kinds of school course, and you'll go to whichever one suits you best. And no fees either. They'll have to see that there are all kinds of schools for all sorts of people. And all with governors and teachers to run them and staff them. The system worked, for some, but it became apparent that dividing kids at the age of 11 left a lot of people behind. Disillusionment with grammars grew. In fact, some local authorities had already set up their own comprehensives by the time Anthony Crosland formally introduced them in 1965. On a different level, there is preparation for commercial careers. 
swimming bath will always be popular. Holland Park is a comprehensive school. It shows that Britain is well to the fore in the educational field. I asked the education journalist Melissa Benn how grammars came to be abolished in most of the country. There was a very strong movement based on the injustice, really, of dividing children at the age of 11, pre-puberty. But I would have said, if we're trying to summarise the key reasons why it was largely abolished and moved on from, is the number of middle-class parents who found their children failing the 11+. And there's a very good quote from Simon Jenkins, the journalist, about how the education minister of the period, Edward Boyle, in the early 60s, was, quote, torn limb from limb by middle-class parents at meetings because they had thought of the grammar schools as their schools and to have their children fail was a great sense of shame. And that was one of the reasons why the comprehensive movement came in. There was a progressive wing that had seen it was unjust, but it was a bipartisan movement. You'd find parents across the spectrum and Conservatives and Labour supporting this move away from this crass division. But not everyone liked comprehensives either. It wasn't long before a backlash began. Opponents of the new comprehensives seized on the failure of Rising Hill School in Islington. It had opened in 1960 and closed less than five years later. It was a very particular kind of experiment, which I would as much attribute to the history of the 1960s as I would to the comprehensive movement. And why do I say that? Because so many comprehensives around the country were rather small-c conservative, they were run by Tory-controlled local authorities, they had streaming, they had uniforms, they were very, very traditional. But in different areas, you got schools that were more experimental, and Rising Hill was a very, very experimental school. And actually, when you look back at it, some of its experimentalism was was things that we wouldn't think were bad or or particularly extreme now at all, like it got rid of corporal punishment. Nobody would argue in 2022 that, that teachers and heads should be able to beat children. So that was one example of it. But it was it was a progressive school. There were a couple of other schools like that. There'd been an even more interesting one in 1945, St George's in the East. These always attract a lot of attention, but they're not typical. Rising Hill cast a long shadow. I asked Melissa why the word comprehensive seems to carry a stigma. You won't find many schools that include it in their name. You have to see it as part of this long cultural war, and you have to recognise that those who oppose the idea of educating all children together tend to have and have had the strongest voice in society. I did a piece of work looking at the word comprehensive and how it appeared and the metaphors associated with it. And it was just really interesting. It was often using metaphors of the battlefield. And I remember Tony Parsons, the journalist, saying that going to a comprehensive was, quote, the equivalent of being sent to the Somme, you know, to die in the First World War. You know, people have been very, very negative about it. And I think that's affected parents. A lot of parents still don't want their children to go to a comprehensive. And the Labour government elected in 1997 knew that. So at the beginning of the 21st century, David Blunkett announced a new type of school, 
an academy. Academies left the control of their local authority and took some decisions independently. Fiona Miller is an expert on their history. We mean a state school, but an independent state school. So it sits outside the normal legal framework for state education. It's not a private school, but it is private in a sense in that it's it's independent. They have changed quite dramatically over the period since they were first introduced. Well, first as city technology colleges and then as academies under the Labour government. So tell us how that happened. When Michael Gove expanded the academy system in 2010, how did he make it more attractive for schools to become academies? Well, I do think you need to go back to what, what Labour set up, which was basically schools that were sort of failing and in challenging circumstances. And they did have a considerable amount of autonomy. That is certainly true. But what became clear after a while was that they were using some of their freedoms in a way that wasn't very good. I mean, they were not doing the right thing on special educational needs and on admissions and so on. So gradually, the model funding agreements, which govern how academies are run, were brought into line with the body of law that applies to all the maintained schools. Now, what happened when Gove became education secretary is he wanted to expand the programme exponentially. So he basically offered people an awful lot of money to become academies. Therefore, a lot of other schools that wouldn't have normally have become an academy previously, grammar schools, for example, and even some private schools came into the state sector, converted to academy status. And that, and that changed the whole nature of the academy programme. But at the same time, the compliance regime was being brought into line with maintained schools. So in fact, the freedoms they were promised in the beginning don't really exist now. So the whole thing's a bit of a nonsense. So have academies done better than other schools? Well, I think in the early days, there was some evidence that you know, change of leadership and investment made a difference. But what we've seen over time is that it makes no more difference if you're doing it in an academy school than in a maintained school. If school is struggling, it probably does need a change of leadership and and, and more investment. It doesn't have to be an academy to get better. And when you look at the global data over a considerable period now, almost 20 years, in fact, there is absolutely no difference between the performance of maintain schools and academy schools. So the whole thing was a hugely expensive time and energy trap as far as I'm concerned. Added to which, of course, you've now got a lot of schools grouped into these chains which aren't locally accountable. They're they're national chains. So you can have schools all over the country that belong to one chain and and they're effectively run by the chains rather like, and in some cases, it's rather like a sort of chain of supermarkets. You know, they don't have much autonomy themselves. Everything is decided by by the sort of central organisation that runs them. But if academies haven't transformed the quality of education that young people get, universities have. Going to university is not an elite experience anymore. It's a place where 43% of 18-year-olds go. That was hard to imagine after the war. Right after the war, 3-4%, something like that. And then it creeps up quite steadily over the course of the 50s. And it's it hits about 7% by the end of the 50s. And and then there's a bit of a surge in the 60s, and it, it reaches a peak of 14% in 1970. Peter Mandler is a historian at the University of Cambridge. As he told me, separating people into university and non-university paths at the age of 11 was thought to be the best way to funnel them into the right outcome. But it didn't work out that way. They were operating on the assumption that only about 25% of the population could take the exams, the O-levels and the A-levels, that might qualify them for higher education. Even within that system, the majority of people are being shuttled off to secondary modern schools where they wouldn't be offered O-levels. 
And only the minority in grammar schools would be offered O-levels, without which you couldn't go to A-levels and so on. Even within that system, more and more people were taking O-levels as secondary moderns. They weren't supposed to, but they could show that they were able to, and the schools found themselves having to provide them. So even before there was any attempt to move beyond this system of division at 11 plus towards a comprehensive system, growth of demand for higher education was manifesting itself. And one of the reasons I think why the comprehensive system was adopted was precisely because it was perfectly clear there were tons of kids who had been selected at 11 plus not to go to grammar school, but who were capable of passing and indeed were passing the grammar school exam, the O-level, and therefore, there made no, it made no sense any longer to divide them up at 11. It would be much better to, to put them all into comprehensive schools and let anyone who wanted to, was capable of doing, take the O-level. So even before 1965, young people were breaking out of the silo they'd been assigned to. Universities were growing. Yet in 1970, the boom abruptly stopped. Why? I worked on this myself for years, and I don't have a fully adequate answer. I think part of the problem is that lots of things happened at the same time. First of all, the universities were in a bit of an uproar, you know, the counterculture, student protest, and so on. And I think a lot of parents were reluctant to throw their children into that maelstrom, especially girls. There was a surge of employment opportunities in industry in the early 70s, the kind of Indian summer, you might say, of, of, of industrial employment. And so a lot of young men decided that they would, instead of going on to further education, would go into employment because there were a lot of opportunities for them. And then those opportunities fell apart. So over the course of the 70s and early 80s, there was a very rocky labor market and no one knew what the right thing to do was. So a lot of people just sort of held back and and paused and tried to work out what the hell was the right thing to do. I think the fact that girls were still not being encouraged in very large numbers to go to university artificially suppressed young women's tendency to go to university. As I say, you know, almost everything you can imagine, those of us who lived through it can testify to this, almost everything you can imagine could happen in the 70s to make the future prospects, both for employment and for education, uncertain happened. And then in the early 80s, student numbers started going up again. People started coming back. It hadn't been predicted that they would come back. And in fact, the Labour government in the late 70s and Thatcher in the early 80s, especially, had been rather relieved that fewer people were coming forward for higher education because it saved money. The Labour government paid lip service to the idea that there should be expansion, but it didn't happen. Thatcher actually tried to restrict the number of people going to university, and Keith Joseph, her education secretary, tried to... It had, it had plateaued at about 14% of the 18 and 19-year-olds, and it, he wanted to dr start driving it down to 12. What was happening already in the early 80s to some extent before government even knew what was happening, is that in the polytechnics in particular, more mature students who had stayed out of higher education in the 70s started coming back in, especially mature women. Meanwhile, the government was still trying to keep a lid on student numbers. Keith Joseph still tried to hold the line right up until 1985. But at that point, a lot of 18 and 19-year-olds were also trying to enter higher education. So those participation rates started to rise, and I think they were at 15 or 16 percent by the time Keith Joseph threw in the towel. There was a huge backbench rebellion in the Tory party. He was replaced by Kenneth Baker. And then, as you say, a decision was made. But it's a decision that was already being implemented by millions of or hundreds of thousands of young people who were enrolling in courses which were not subject to direct government control like polytechnic courses and were banging at the door, so to speak, for more university places. It just surged ahead through the 90s and it 
It hit 30% early in the 90s and passed it. Again, no government decision was made. No government minister planned this. It, it, it was demand-driven. We've gone from a country where a tiny minority of 18-year-olds went to university to mass higher education. I asked Peter Mandler why this was. It's a massive transformation, isn't it, between the boomers and Generation X? A massive transformation of experience and how people spent their formative years. Massive transformation. And again, it's not entirely clear why. I mean, sadly, not enough people were asked at the time. There is a wonderful Scottish school leaver survey that was done almost every year in that period. And we do have some clues from that. But the research team with which I work is only just now analyzing those results. But I mean, clearly, one of the things that happens after the roller coaster ride of the economy in the 70s and early 80s and deindustrialization um, leads to a new kind of economy based on, you know, much more knowledge based jobs and also a new kind of economy where people don't feel and a new kind of society where more people don't feel locked into the trajectories of their parents the way they used to. We've talked about education as the route into the middle class in Britain, and for many people, it was. But the upper classes changed too, as Peter York told me. They were keenly alert to the prestige of certain universities. Thing one, because that balance between money and established status has changed. Thing two, we are now part of a world order, which we didn't used to be. So there's British plutocracy and British poshocracy, and then there are people who make it to the world categories. So now in Belgravia and Knightsbridge, there are pretty few Brit achievers. And most of the people who live there and who also live in lots of other places on other continents are only there a bit of the time. Most of those people are from other places. They are, for instance, very, very rich Eastern Europeans, very, very rich South Asians, and so on. So if we take the Grosvenor Estate, which is one of the great estates of London, and whose owners are both very grand and very rich, all the places on the Grosvenor Estate have changed and changed and changed. Status definitions are different in London than in the provinces, for sure. In the provinces, they're more traditional. In London, they recognise money and always have. Does this class of people, these citizens of nowhere almost, you could call them, do they want to join a vision that they have of the British upper class with all its accoutrements? Well, it's often a very foggy vision and it consists of a number of definable brands. One brand is the royal family, get close to them. Another brand would be things like Knightsbridge and Belgravia, which all those people have heard of. They haven't heard of the subtleties of which side of the road in Fulham you might live on, but they have heard of Knightsbridge and Belgravia and Harrods and, and, and. I'm being rather sweeping and disobliging here, but you know what I mean. So they've also heard of a small number of hugely branded British schools, starting with Eton, Eton, Westminster. They don't know about Oundle and Uppingham. There was at one point 
at the headmasters conference sort of trade association for public schools a bit of this quiet but possibly not documented discussion about the fact that young sirs at British public schools from Eastern Europe used to attack their parents' enemies in a rather violent way. In other words, Eastern European feuds were played out in British public schools in a rather surprising way, as you know. And this was sort of rather hushed up because it, it brings in big money, having those those people in your school, these very financially oriented enterprises, and it brings in big money. The school is the way in, isn't it? Of course, I missed out here. The other thing that they've heard of is Oxbridge. And with more sophisticated and educationally more sophisticated, they will know about Imperial if they want their little darling to be a science person. And they will know about LSE, etc., if they're very keen on economics and so on. But the main thing that they've heard about is, of course, Oxbridge. Just like grammar schools, the top universities define themselves as meritocracies. Anyone can get there if they're good enough. It's just that they may not realise it unless they go to the right kind of school. And the beauty and prestige of Oxford and Cambridge attracts gifts from all over the world. In 2019, Oxford University received its biggest ever gift from Stephen Schwartzman, an American billionaire who chairs the investment fund Blackstone. He didn't even go to Oxford himself, yet Schwartzman gave the university a cool £150 million. Last year, he forked over another £25 million. Meanwhile, public schools, which are, of course, private, have thrived by attracting big donations and rich students from all over the world. It's hard to believe, but these elite institutions are actually registered as charities. That means big tax breaks for people who donate to them and big advantages for the schools themselves. Rishi Sunak, for example, has given more than £100,000 to his old school, Winchester College. But that money, he was keen to point out, is earmarked for bursaries that let pupils study there whose parents wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. Those parents aren't necessarily badly off, because the annual boarding fees at Winchester are just under £46,000. The school does warn people hoping to claim a bursary that frequent or expensive holidays, luxury cars and land holdings may mean that you won't get help with fees. Most of these schools need to maintain an element of meritocracy to justify their tax breaks. But to pay for the bursaries, they also need to attract the very wealthiest from around the world and persuade them to carry on donating to the school throughout their lives. That wouldn't be possible without the aura of mystique and exclusivity that hovers around the British upper classes. Social commentator Peter York points out that in the 1980s, the aristocracy began to use that reputation to attract the money it needed to keep going. There's also a brilliant essay by Nick Coleridge from, I think, in The Spectator, and I think sort of 1987-ish, saying you know, that while Margaret Thatcher was regarded as a great upsetter of conventions, what she'd done had enormously increased the asset value of everything that Toffs had. Things that people were brought up to think were status symbols before we got into international status symbolry. So going to polo matches, and you, you, you then put together, you get put together new money, 
celebrity and sponsoring money and things like important polo turned into Dunhill polo. As the Home Intelligence Report said during the war. A few, a very few, are fervent supporters of the English public school system. They attribute to these institutions all the virtues, the inculcation of learning, tolerance, refinement, etc, etc. By cannily opening themselves up to a lucky few of the middle classes, Britain's public schools managed to make themselves look aspirational. They also became much more pleasant places to spend your childhood. The beatings stopped and the accommodation got more comfortable. So what happened to the grammar schools? There are still 163 of them, concentrated in a few parts of the country. In theory, the 11-plus exams that children sit are supposed to identify the cleverest pupils. But who'd take the chance on that if you can pay for tuition? Sure enough, 70% of tutored kids pass the 11-plus and only 14% of untutored pupils succeed. Here's Melissa Ben. The tuition industry is very, very active in places like Buckinghamshire and Kent and and Lincolnshire, and everybody knows that. You also have quite a percentage. I think it's about 12% of children who get into grammars have been educated at private schools at primary level, which is another form of sustained tuition. And of course, if tuition is so important, and it clearly is, that leaves behind completely families that are struggling financially. And of course, thinking now with the cost of living crisis, that's going to be even more the case. You'd think that kids from comprehensives with no grammars nearby would have a good chance of getting into top universities. But look at the figures, and it turns out that Oxford and Cambridge vastly prefer students from grammar schools. When you look at the top 50 schools which send pupils to Oxford and Cambridge, only one comprehensive school makes it onto the list. The top two, as they have been for many years, are Westminster School and Eton. So why do we still talk about the working middle and upper classes when it's money and not blood that talks in modern Britain? A decade ago, the sociologist Mike Savage and his team carried out a big survey of Britons. They looked at their income, whether they owned their own home, what they did in their spare time and who they socialised with. It was called the Great British Class Survey. You can still do it online. Savage identified seven different classes in British society with an elite at the top and what he called a precariat at the bottom. Savage argues that in Britain we're obsessed with the boundary between the middle and working classes. He says that's partly because we're nostalgic about the 1950s when it was breaking down. And maybe surprisingly, that nostalgia is alive and well even on the left. Keir Starmer's biography on the Labour Party website says, Keir studied hard to sit the 11 plus, which he passed and went to the local grammar school. Starmer, though, is on record as saying that he doesn't believe in academic selection and wouldn't open more grammars. It's a tough fence to balance on. The way we think about class in Britain is tied up with feelings of self-worth and whether we've earned our success. Should we ask a different question? Where does the wealth sit in Britain? Who has what Mike Savage calls the cultural capital, links to the elite, and the ability to make their voices heard? It's not all bad news. In the last 70 years, we've done a good job of giving people who want it a university education. We've done just enough to convince ourselves that we live in a meritocracy and attracted a global elite that helps pay for top British schools and universities. 
We'd hate to think that we live in a society where class snobbery and ancient ideas about blue blood have any sway. After all, you don't even have to have a title to marry into the royal family anymore. But we have an elite class in Britain, so let's call it that. It's not necessarily British. It owns property, and it has the ability to buy places at the best schools. And yet the toff, as Peter York calls him, still fascinates us. The success of one man in particular shows us how money can now buy the privilege and power that used to be reserved for an aristocratic elite. Eden does make for a whole lot of pretensions, but more important than that, a whole lot of connections. So... Boris Johnson, as a result of Eton, has a whole lot of uh, connection with people who are infinitely richer and infinitely grander than he is. In the next episode of Jam Tomorrow, I'll be looking at how the Church of England lost touch with the people it depended on. And I'll talk to people who go to the new churches springing up around Britain, where you don't need to believe in God to be welcome. I believe in good. And that's one of our sayings, you know, with, with New Unity, is to believe in good. That's our strapline, believe in good. I'm Ros Taylor. This is Jam Tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was me, Jay Bailey. Music was by Dubstar, with artwork by James Parrott. Additional voiceover work was by Imogen Robertson. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The home intelligence reports featured in this podcast are now held in the National Archives and are available on the MOI digital website. Footage from Room at the Top, courtesy of Romulus Films. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production.